and you can be seated. Uh, this morning, we're going to be concluding Romans uh, chapter number one. And like I mentioned earlier in the service and last week, uh, this is a difficult passage of scripture. Uh, but if we believe God's word to be true, and if we believe God's word to be good, then we can't skip it, we can't ignore it, and we have to believe it, even if the truths we see seem difficult. Uh, this passage of scripture, um, this is a passage of scripture that our flesh will want to fight against because this passage of scripture exposes our flesh. And we always want to make sure, or we also want to make sure that we are always rightly dividing the truth. Uh, because many throughout history have misapplied scripture and done horrible things as a result. Uh, but when we seek the Holy Spirit and when we follow his leading and when we seek to rightly understand God's word, uh, we will become more like Jesus. Uh, so let me encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter number one, and I will read it for us one final time. Romans chapter number one. Uh, if you need a Bible, there should be one on the row uh, somewhere close to you. Uh, Romans chapter number one, beginning of verse number one, the Bible says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh. And he was appointed to be the powerful son of God according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the Gentiles, including you, who are also called by Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, loved by God, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because the news of your faith is being reported in all the world. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in telling the good news about his Son, that I constantly mention you, always asking in my prayers that if it is somehow in God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Now, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I often plan to come to you, but was prevented until now, in order that I might have a fruitful ministry among you, just as I have had among the rest of the Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and barbarians, both to the wise and foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood 
through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless. Their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Therefore, God delivered them over in the desires of their heart to sexual impurity so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what has been created instead of the Creator who is praised forever. Amen. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men in the same way also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lusts for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, greed, and wickedness. They are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Let's pray. Father, I pray that your spirit would anoint the preaching of your word this morning. And Lord, it's been a heavy few weeks for us as a nation. This is a heavy passage of scripture. But I pray that as we consider the bad news, that the good news of Jesus would shine that much brighter. And I pray that as we consider the idolatry that we see running rampant in our society, that we would look to Jesus and see Jesus as a proclamation of good news, that we would see Jesus as the answer that will provide healing and liberty from the idolatry that we see people in bondage to. Father, I pray that you would open our minds to understand and contemplate these things from your word. I pray that despite the heaviness of this passage, that your word would give us life and strength this morning. Lord, we need your strength. We need life from you. It's so easy to be overwhelmed and fall into despair as we consider the idolatry that we see all over. But I pray that your word would be a source of life and strength. I pray that your church would delight in your instruction this morning. I pray that we would delight in your word. Even though it's heavy, I pray that we would delight in it because it reminds us that we need Jesus, but not only does it remind us that we need Jesus, it shows us that we have Jesus. And that as we delight in your word, we would, your word would be planted in the good soil of open hearts so that we could be like righteous trees planted by flowing streams 
bearing the fruit of holiness to bring you glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Now, last week we saw how the unbelieving Gentile world had suppressed the truth about God. We saw that because of creation, because of general revelation, that is creation, God had shown himself to the Gentile world. But instead of worshiping God, they suppressed the truth about God. Instead of recognizing that there was an all-powerful creator, they began to worship themselves, and not only worship themselves, worship things less than themselves. You see, it says they worship animals and reptiles. And we saw that unbelief is a refusal to acknowledge and worship God and a decision to worship self. We see this in verses 22 and 23 of Romans chapter number 1. Paul says, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. Verse 25 says that they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served what had been created instead of the creator who is praised forever. Amen. Now the phrase, the truth of God, is a Hebrew phrase meaning the true God. God is called the true God in opposition to idols, which are called false gods. There is one real or true God, and all others are false. The lie that Paul is talking about is that man is his own God, and he should worship and serve himself, not the creator. That's the lie that they exchange for the, the one true God. They exchange the one true God for worship of self. This was the lie that Satan used in the Garden of Eden to deceive Eve. You will be as God. This is the consistent lie. This is the root at so much of the sin that we see. Idols are often called falsehoods and lies because they are not true representations of God. They are representation of created things. Now, as Paul is explaining idolatry, he compares false worship with the worship of the one true God. And as he does so, he ends verse 25 with a doxology. He says, who is praised forever. Amen. By ending with amen, Paul is punctuating the importance of true worship. Amen means it is so or so be it. So Paul is emphasizing that God alone is worthy of our worship. God is the only one who is worthy to be worshipped. So be it. It is so. Our creator is the true God and he is to be worshipped and served and praised forever and ever and ever. So the root of the issue in Romans 1 is idolatry. And this is what is at the heart of unbelief. This was all of us before Christ saved us. Before Christ, we were all lost in idolatry. Ephesians tells us that we were all children of wrath by nature. Now this is important to remember because before Christ, we were all in idolatry. And this is important to have in mind as we work through this passage because if we don't keep that in mind, we might begin to view Romans chapter 1 as an us versus them type of situation. Instead of a before Christ and after Christ type of situation. And when we view this as an us versus them situation, self-righteousness will begin to creep in. And we become very loud about things on this list that we don't inherently struggle with. And we also become very silent about the things on the list that we do. Not every person expresses everything on this list as a result of idolatry. But apart from Christ, we are all guilty of the idolatry that drives everything on this list. 
So it's important for us to keep this in mind because idolatry is the main reason that God turns them over. Every time Paul says, every time Paul says God delivers them over or God turns them over, he ties it back to idolatry. They worshiped idols instead of God. Idolatry is the root of the problem here. And as this idolatry comes more and more to fruition, Paul says there's, there comes a point when God delivers them over to those disgraceful passions. So it, it would seem that God delivers them over because of idolatry and because of the fruit of that idolatry. But the main issue that we see here is self-worship. And what Romans chapter 1 does is Romans chapter number 1 shows us the symptoms of idolatry. Warren Wiersbe said, to go from idolatry to immorality is just one short step. If man is his own God, then he can do whatever he pleases and fulfill his desires without fear of judgment. If man sets himself up as God, there's no accountability. If man sets up even four-footed beasts or animals or reptiles as God, clearly a reptile, that little lizard, is not going to provide any accountability. So to go from idolatry to immorality is just one short step. Because you remove all type of accountability. You remove any type of moral absolute. And as a result of this immorality that is fueled by idolatry, three times God, Paul says God delivered them over. In verse 24, God gives them over to the desires of their heart. The Greek word for desire in verse 24 is epithemia. It means a longing for, especially what is forbidden concupiscence this desire it means to lust after it means you there is a longing there is a craving for something that god has said no to this is not a good desire god is giving them over to it in verse 26 god delivers them over to disgraceful passions disgraceful means dishonor or reproach or shame or vile then in verse 28 god delivers them over to a corrupt mind this is a mind that cannot form the right judgments. This is a mind that cannot discern right from wrong. It means unapproved or rejected. By implication, it means worthless, either literally or morally. It means to be cast away, rejected, or reprobate. God delivers them over to a mind that cannot discern right from wrong. Last week, we saw that because of idolatry, God's wrath is revealed. Now, we also saw how this is not the final judgment, but this is the first wave of God's wrath. He gives people what they want. Throughout scripture, we see that sin is often the judgment of sin. God does not create the sin. He simply gives people over to it. You want it? Okay. And one of the first signs we see in verse 24, one of the first signs of this, of this fruition of idolatry, this fruition of God saying, okay, you can have it, we see is sexual impurity. Look at verse 24. Therefore God delivered them over in the desires of their hearts to sexual impurities so that their bodies were degraded among themselves. Now sexual impurity is pretty all-encompassing. The word degrade means to dishonor, to handle, to shame. It means to maltreat, to despise or entreat shamefully. Basically this means to objectify people's bodies and turn them into sex objects. Whenever our first thought of a person is anything other than an image bearer of God, we know we're off. When a person views pornography or even looks at a person with the primary intent of sexual gratification, this is what is happening. 
It's a heart that is captured by sexual impurity that is degrading other people's bodies. Sometimes in an attempt to live a morally pure life, and by the way, that's a good thing. We should seek to live a morally pure life because God has made us holy. God has made us pure, so our lifestyle should reflect that. But sometimes in an attempt to live a morally pure life, we treat people like they are sex objects to avoid instead of image bearers of God. I think one of the best ways to live a morally pure life is not to look at people as sex objects to avoid, but to look at people as image bearers of God. One of the best ways to live a morally pure life is not to degrade our view of people and their bodies, but to elevate them. This is a creation of God. If that sister is a sister in Christ, she is God's daughter. And even if they're not a believer in Christ, they are still God's creation. Image bearers of God, human beings that reflect the glory of God. Instead of looking at people as sex objects, view them as God's creation that bears his image. This type of sexual impurity leads to degradation of the body. It's a result of idolatry. It's to worship the image of God for what I can get out of it. Now, I know this doesn't answer all of our questions about this. And next week, between chapter 1 and chapter 2, I'm going to teach a whole sermon on holy sexuality. So pray for me. <laughs> um, but this is what Paul is saying here. Sexual impurity, it degrades the image of God that we see in his creation. Then in verses 26 and 27, he gets more specific by addressing homosexuality. Now, this is a very controversial passage. And it's the longest passage in the Bible on this subject, these two verses. Look at verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God delivered them over to disgraceful passions. Their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. The men, in the same way, also left natural relations with women and were inflamed in their lust for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. Now, in recent years, uh, some have tried to say that this passage only refers to certain kinds of promiscuous homosexual acts, like prostitution, or older men forcing teenage boys to have sex with them. And that they'll say that Paul was simply not familiar with committed, stable homosexual union that we see today. And if he was familiar with it, he would have made a distinction here. Many will teach that this refers to people who act against their own nature, so it does not include long-term settled relationships. Now, while it is true that many of these things that I just, ha that, that I just mentioned, the prostitution or older men forcing uh, young teenage boys to have sex with them, was very much a part, and it was very regular in Greek and Roman culture, it is simply not true that long-term settled homosexual relationships we see today weren't a thing when Paul wrote this. They were very much a thing. Enduring, committed, same-sex relationships were very much a thing. They were very much a part of Greek and Roman culture, and Paul most definitely would have known about them. It was very common in Greek and Roman culture. In fact, more recent historians like Eric Beth in 1907 or K.J. Dover have shown us by examining history that same-sex relations were openly practiced, largely with official sanction, in many areas of life from the 7th century B.C. all the way through the Roman era. In the Greek military, it was actually viewed as an honorable thing. They believed if you fought with your male lover, you would fight better because you would want to impress them. So it was this honorable thing in Greek society. 
And yet Paul doesn't distinguish between different kinds of homosexual acts and identifies all sexual relations of men between men and women between women as a departure from God, from the creator's design for human flourishing. They are unnatural, he says. Literally in the Greek, this means against nature. So what Paul is doing is Paul is showing us that this is a violation of the created nature, the created order that God gave for men and for women. And as a cultured and well-traveled Roman citizen, Paul would have been very aware of what was socially acceptable in his day and in his society. And the reason he brings this up here is that he is citing this as one of the clearest examples of elevating our own desires over the creator's design. It's the result of idolatry. Now, many with same-sex attraction would say that they were born that way. So isn't that how God made them? And the truth is, most of us don't get to choose how the fall affects us. For some people, idolatry manifests itself as envy. For others, greediness. For some, it's a predisposition to gossip. Or perhaps you really struggle to show mercy. All of us have corrupted desires in some form. And for the believer, we know the answer is to die to self. The answer is to be born again. All of us have corrupted desires in some form. And I would say that all of us have corrupted sexual desires in some form that we have to, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, fight. None of us are born with the righteousness of God. This is why all of us must be born again. So if somebody says, well, I was born this way, guess what? We were all born that way in one way or another. That's why Jesus said, you must be born again. And we also have to recognize that our desires are not who we are. What you want is not your identity. As human beings, regardless of our faith, we are image bearers of God. So to lower our identity to our desires is to radically distort our view of personhood. And so, if we as Christians look down on, or if we look at disgust, a person with same-sex attraction, all that does is reveal our own idolatry. It reveals our arrogance, which is on this list. Because we think that their sin is worse than ours. To be unmerciful or unloving is just as much a fruit of idolatry. So if our knee-jerk reaction is anything other than compassion, that should be a red flag that we need to pause and do some serious considering of our own heart. Tim Keller has a very helpful quote here. He says, the Bible is clear that active homosexual sex as a settled, unrepentant pattern of behavior is indicative of an attitude of rejection of Jesus' lordship and leaves people outside his kingdom, but never outside his reach. Consider 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit God's kingdom? Don't be deceived. No sexually immoral people? Again, that's really all-encompassing. Idolaters, adulterers, or males who have sex with males? No thieves? Greedy people? Drunkards? Verbally abusive people? Or swindlers will inherit God's kingdom? And some of you used to be like this. But what's he say next? But you are washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So while Paul is giving us an example of a person putting their desires over God's design, he is not saying this sin is unforgivable or that somehow this is so much more of an egregious sin. It's clear that in, in, at the church at Corinth, in the book of Corinthians, that God saved people from same-sex attraction and that they were growing in their sanctification. So people with same-sex attraction should first and foremost be recipients of love and compassion. Otherwise, there's something way off inside here. People with same-sex attraction are welcome here because sinners are welcome here. We're not Obi-Wan Kenobi. We don't have the high ground, okay? If you don't understand that reference, don't worry. It's not for you. This sin is not worse than any other type of sin. Paul's about to give us a long list that he calls wicked. And a lot of which, I dare say, is much more prevalent and even tolerated by those of us in the church. But everything we see in Romans 1 is the fruit of rejecting the truth of God. What this also helps us understand is that becoming heterosexual is not the answer for the person with same-sex attraction. You don't get saved by turning straight. You don't get saved by being moral. Morality does not save a person. Jesus does. And so there are some people who have same-sex attraction that have found faith in Jesus, and they did. There are other people who found faith in Jesus, and they say, you know what? That desire is still there. So my, my solution is not to um, turn straight. My solution is to crucify that desire and live a life of celibacy. So this helps us understand, when we understand the idolatry that's at the fruit of it, the answer is Jesus, just like Jesus is the answer for everything else that we see. So as a church, we have to be on guard against two extremes, and we see both these extremes in churches all across the world. On the one hand, we don't want to and we cannot compromise with the clear teaching of Scripture and a firm behavior that God says is wrong. Paul is very clear that homosexuality is a disgraceful passion. But on the other hand, we cannot act as if this is the sin that needs to be addressed and be unwelcoming or unloving to our homosexual neighbor. Paul is about to list a lot of things that hit way closer to home. Now, as Paul closes out verse 27, he says that they received in their own persons the appropriate penalty for their error. This is simply reaping the result of idol worship which every idol worshiper does. If you worship yourself, it will always bring pain. It brings pain. It brings heartache. James tells us that when sin is finished, it brings death. Now, as we move on, we see Paul begins to show us a lot more fruit of idolatry. Look at verse number eight, uh, 28. Excuse me. Verse 28, it says, And because they... Now, we have to remember, Paul is saying they because he is referring to an unsaved Gentile audience. But as we're going to see in chapter 2 and chapter 3, this is all of us. Paul was Jewish, so he's not including himself in the Gentile audience, so he's saying they. But as we move into chapter 2 and 3, he makes it very clear that we're all guilty. So this is all of us. So, verse 28, And because they did not think it worthwhile to acknowledge God, God delivered them over to a corrupt mind, so that they do what is not right. They are filled with all unrighteousness, evil, Greed and wickedness, they are full of envy, murder, quarrels, deceit, and malice. 
There are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, senseless, untrustworthy, unloving, and unmerciful. Although they know God's just sentence, that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. So Paul started with sexual sin, but he goes on to show us that every part of our life, every part of the human existence, has been affected by the sin of unbelief. Then at the end of verse 32, he says, they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Now it's easy for us to look around society and see this happening, isn't it? To some degree, it seems as if it's happening more and more and more. We see agendas being pushed in entertainment more and more and more, and it grieves us, and it should. It should bother us, not from a place of self-righteousness or anger, but from a place of, boy, our society is worshiping and serving the created and not the creator. It should break our hearts. But how often do other things on that list that I just read fill our entertainment and we don't even bat an eye? How often is our entertainment filled with greed or wickedness or murder or quarrels, deceit? How often is it filled with arrogant, proud, boastful, inventors of evil? How often is it filled with unloving and unmercifulness? I mean, I understand the desire to get up in arms about agenda that's being pushed, but again, it reveals our own idolatry when we just look the other way on so many other things that are all on the same list. It seems like we're more and more becoming godless, but to a large degree, our country as a Gentile society, we've always been godless. The idolatry that we see here in Romans 1 has produced some of the most horrendous sins in our country. This idolatry is what fueled slavery in our country. Now, I know a lot of people try to sweep it away or kind of ignore it by saying things like, well, the founding fathers were just men of their times and they didn't know better, but that's just not true. If you read founding documents and if you read honest history, you'll see men like George Washington and Thomas Jefferson knew slavery was wrong. They knew what they were doing to their fellow man, but they rationalized it because it was good for the economy. It's a celebration of greed. It's a celebration of wickedness. They suppressed the truth. And what was the result? Evil. Greed. Wickedness. Often murder. Arrogance and pride. The thought that they were somehow better because of the color of their skin. What wicked arrogance. Unmerciful systems. Unloving. And we can act like this type of bigotry is a thing of the past. I mean, slavery may be outlawed, but this type of sin is still very prevalent. The shooting in Buffalo gave us a front row seat to it. White supremacy is insidious and vile. Conspiracy theories that lead to ideologies like the replacement theory that says people of color are going to outnumber white people and that's somehow a bad thing are wicked and godless. And as Christians, it should break our heart. Because it reveals a society that has suppressed the truth about God. And it doesn't just affect race relations in our country. I mean, we saw last week 
to see an 18-year-old kid walk into a school and brutally murder children should grieve us. It is senseless. It's murder. It's wicked. It is the result of idolatry. And it's nothing new. I mean, I, I read Psalm 10 earlier. You could take Psalm 10 and just put it on that situation. It's unrighteous. Unrighteous means iniquity or unjust, unrighteous and wrong. When we see injustice in our, in our society, it should grieve us because it is the result of idolatry. It's the result of saying my rights matter more than your rights, so I'm going to take away your rights so I can get what I want. It is wicked, and it should break our hearts. It should break our hearts when political parties in, in, in our institutions celebrate things like abortion up to the moment of birth. That should disgust us and break our hearts. But it should also break our hearts when our institutions and our political parties celebrate arrogant, proud, and boastful politicians because that is every much a bit of idolatry. It should break our hearts when we see our politicians bemoaning the fact that they are not able to mock children who struggle with sexual orientation and gender. And that's happened this year. That should break our hearts. Now, I don't mean to apply that certain things on this list don't have more of a social impact than others. Certainly they do. The penalty for murder should be worse than gossip. Absolutely. That's why God gave us the common grace of government so that they could be, so that they could execute his justice. But my point is, it's the same idolatry that fuels both. Both are indicators that we are all equally in need of a savior. What we need to recognize is that Romans, cap Romans 1 captures all of our society. It reveals that our society is godless and it has suppressed the truth about God and it's been doing that way longer than any of us have been alive. Now in verse 32, Paul says that though they know God's just sentence, those who practice such things deserve to die. This is another verse that's important to rightly understand. Paul isn't saying that if you struggle with envy, you deserve the death penalty, okay? What he is saying is the wages of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. What Paul is saying, he says in Romans chapter 5, we'll get there in a bit. Romans 5, verse 12, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and this way death spread to all people, because all have sinned. God has given everyone a conscience, and yet this is another example of how the truth has been suppressed, and as a result, everyone stands guilty. This is the picture of a society that has suppressed the truth about God and worshipped in self instead. So in conclusion, what do we do with this bleak, dark picture that we're given of society? Three things I want to mention. First of all, we see God. The beauty we see in this world shows us the existence of God. And the brokenness in this world, according to Romans 1, shows us the justice of God. God's turning people over to it because God is righteous and God is holy. God created the world, but his creation rejected him, so he gives them what they want as the first wave of his wrath. So first of all, we look to God. Second of all, we give no room to self-righteousness. 
Because as we're going to see as we move into chapter number two, self-righteousness always leads to self-condemnation. When we judge the lost world, we wind up judging ourselves. That's what we see as we move into chapter number two. So we don't give room to self-righteousness, but we also don't have to fear being turned over to the sin we struggle with. As believers, we don't have to fear being turned over to the wrath of God because we have received the righteousness of God. So we don't have to live in fear. Oh man, is, is God going to turn me over? No, 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 no. God's turned you over to holiness. God's turned you over to his righteousness. God has given you, because of faith in him, God has given you his righteousness and his love and his purity and his holiness. So we don't have to fear being turned over because we have been saved from the wrath of God. Amen? Tim Keller has another very helpful quote. This one's a little bit longer. On dealing with this idea that when we look at Romans 1, there's no room for self-righteousness. He says, this gives us both the humility and the freedom to ask what idols could be or are already jostling for position with my creator in my heart and life. Because I don't have to fear being turned over. I can ask myself hard questions. What idols could be or perhaps are already there jostling for position with my creator in my heart and life? He says this passage prompts us to look for places where we are envious. It prompts us to look for places where we are slanderous, disloyal, lusting, and so on. These things are the indication of what we are worshiping, or indication that we are worshiping an idol, that something other than God has become our functional master. And so we need to ask, what would it look like to depend on my creator in this area? How would I love and feel and live differently if I praised my creator at that point rather than serving a created thing? What would it look like if I, instead of feeling I need to be entertained by the sinful thing, said, you know what, I'm just going to trust God that he is enough and that the Lord is my shepherd and I have what I need. What would it look like to ask ourselves, what would it look like to depend on the creator in this area? If there's these things on this list and they're convicting you, ask the Holy Spirit, show me, how am I not depending on my creator? And thirdly, as we are confronted with our Gentile society need for our Savior, we remind ourselves that there is a Savior. God has an answer for this. The answer is the cross. It's Jesus. It's the gospel because it's in the gospel that the righteousness of God is revealed. As we look at the unrighteousness of this world, yes, we lament. Yes, we grieve. Yes, it breaks our heart. But we do not fall into despair because we know there's an answer. And if Jesus, I mean, we look at this list, and it's huge, and it's overwhelming, but what that should do is show us that we serve a God who's bigger. We serve a Savior who is bigger. Yes, the world is wicked, but God's righteousness and God's holiness is so much bigger that he can fix all of that. God has an answer. It's the cross. So yes, we grieve. Yes, we lament, because we see the world killing itself in sin. We mourn the sinful state of our society, and we mourn how there's still echoes of this in our own life, but we do not do so without hope. Like the passages we read, Psalm 10, Jesus is the king. Like the one Hunter read in Isaiah, come, let's fix this. I will make you white as snow. And there's coming a day when God's going to take the weapons of war that are wreaking havoc in our society and he's going to turn them into weapons, to instruments of life. 
He's going to come and he's going to be the righteous judge and he's going to solve all the problems in our world. So what do we do? We remind ourselves God has an answer. There is a solution. We look to the cross to remind ourselves of that solution. God is not just a righteous God angered by our sin, but he's also a merciful father who wants to save us from it. Praise be to God. He sent his son, Jesus, to take the punishment we deserve so that our lives no longer need to be defined by sin, but so that we can become the righteousness of God. And in just a few moments, to help us do this, we are going to observe communion. And as we consider the brokenness that is all around us and the brokenness that's still inside of us, we want to remind ourselves of the solution that God gave. We want to remind ourselves that we are no longer under wrath, but we have been forgiven. There's still echoes of Romans 1 because we still battle our flesh, but that's no longer my reality. We're forgiven. Communion reminds us that our sins have been forgiven. Communion is how we declare that Jesus has sacrificed himself for us. We are no longer given over to sinful desires, but we have now been given over to holy ones. We have now been given over to the fruit of the Spirit and love and righteousness and holiness and purity. Take the opposite of everything on Romans 1, and that's what God has given us in Christ. Communion is how we declare we're in Christ. We're not in sin anymore. Communion affirms his love for us. It affirms our faith in him. It's how we with our whole bodies remind ourselves, I stand forgiven. The blood of the cross was enough. When we take the elements, we declare his sacrifice and that we are trusting in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins. In communion, we remember the cross. And so in just a moment, we're going to have a time of corporate prayer and personal self-reflection. And as we enter into this time of self-reflection, we do two things. We recall his great love for us, while we simultaneously proclaim our great need for him. I'm going to pray for us corporately as a church family. And when I'm done praying, we're going to have a time of self-reflection and prayer. And so after I pray, let me encourage you just to keep your heads bowed and to maybe read through this list. And thank God that you're not given over to it anymore. Praise him for that. But also have the humility to say, God, is there still idolatry in my life and how is it manifesting itself? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would search us and know our hearts. Test our concerns, test our motives. Father, see if there's still idolatry that is in us. See if there's any offensive way in us and then lead us in the everlasting way. Who can perceive his unintentional sins? Father, we praise you that you've cleansed us and you have made us new. And we pray that you would continue to cleanse us from our hidden faults. Continue to root out the sin that is still there. Keep us, your servants, from willful sins. Father, do not let them rule us. Lord, even though we have been set free from you and we now serve you, Lord, Paul will later say in Romans that we are masters to whoever we serve. And so reveal to us where we have given ourselves over to sin, where we have once again taken up the chains which you removed. 
And Lord, we pray that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be acceptable to you, Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Father, we have no merit. But we know that the merits of Jesus stand for us. We are undeserving. But we look to your tender mercy. We're full of infirmities. We're full of wants. We're full of sins. But you are full of grace. So we confess our sin, our frequent sin, our willful sin. All these sins we mourn and we lament. God, we're like a fading leaf that the wind drives away. But you have given us another master and Lord, your son, Jesus. And now our hearts are turned towards holiness. So we pray that you would save us from love of the world and the pride of life. Save us from everything natural to fallen man that our flesh still fights for and let Christ's nature be seen in us every day. I pray that you would work in us a more profound and abiding repentance. Give us the fullness of a godly grief that trembles and fears, yet always trusts and loves, which is always, always powerful and always, always confident. Grant that through tears of repentance, we may see more clearly the brightness and glories of the saving cross. Let me encourage you to keep your heads bowed as we go into a time of personal self-examination and prayer.